Chapter 4 of The Wonderful Year by William John Locke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 4 There is six o'clock striking, and those English have not yet arrived. Thus spake Gaspard Marie Bigourdin, landlord of the Hotel Les Grottes, a vast man clad in a brown holland suit and a soft straw hat with a gigantic brim. So vast was he that his person overlapped in all directions the Austrian Bentwood rocking-chair in which he was taking the cool of the evening. "'They said they would come in time for dinner, mon oncle,' said Felice. She was a graceful slip of a girl, dark-eyed, refined of feature. Fortinbras, with paternal fondness, if you remember, had likened her to the wild flowers from which alpine honey was made. And, indeed, she suggested wild fragrance— her brown hair was done up on the top of her head, and fastened by a comb like that of all the peasant girls of the district, but she wore the blouse and stuff skirt of the well-to-do bourgeoisie. Six o'clock is already time for dinner in Brantome,' remarked Monsieur Bigodin. "'They are accustomed to the hours of London and Paris, where I've heard they dine at eight or nine, or any time that pleases them.' "'In London and Paris they get up at midday and go to bed at dawn.' They are coming here purposely to dishabilitate themselves from the ways of London and Paris. At least, so your father gives me to understand. It is a bad beginning. I am longing to see them, said Felice. Don't you see enough English? Ten years ago an Englishman at Brantome was a curiosity. All the inhabitants, you among them, my petit Felice, used to run two kilometres to look at him. But now, with the automobile, they are as familiar in the eyes of the good Brantomois as truffles. By this simile, M. Bigodin did not mean to convey the idea that the twelve hundred inhabitants of Brantome were all gastronomic voluptuaries. It is true that Brantome battens on pâté de foie gras, but it is the essence of its existence, seeing that Brantome makes it and sells it, and with pigs and dogs hunts the truffles without which pâté de foie gras would be a comestible of fat absurdity. "'But no English had been sent before by my father,' said Felice. Oh, "'That's true.' replied Bigodin, with a capacious smile, showing white, strong teeth. "'They are the first people, French or English, I shall have met who know my father.' "'That's true also,' said Bigodin. "'And they must be the droll types, like your excellent father himself. Tiens, let me see again what he says about them.' He searched his pockets, a process involving convulsions of his frame, which made the rocking-chair creak. Oh, "'It must be in my black jacket,' said he at last. "'I'll get it,' said Felice and went into the house. Bigaudin rolled and lit a cigarette, and gave himself up to comfortable reflection. The Hotel des Grottes was built on the slope of a rock, and the loggia, or veranda, on which Bigaudin was taking his ease, hung over a miniature precipice. At the bottom ran the river Dron, encircling most of the old-world town, and crossed here and there by flashing little bridges. Away to the northeast loomed the mountains of the Limousin, where the river had its source. The tiny place slumbered in the slanting sunshine. The sight of Brantome stretched out below him was inseparable from Bigodin's earliest conception of the universe. In the Hôtel des Grottes he had been born. There, save for a few years at Lyon, whither he had been sent by his mother, in order to widen his views on hotel-keeping, he had spent all his life, and there he sincerely hoped to die, full of honour and good nourishment. Brantome contented him. It belonged to him. It was so diminutive and compact that he could take the whole of it in at once. 
he was familiar with all the little tragedies and comedies that enacted themselves beneath those red-tiled roofs. As he walked down the Rue de Perigot, his hand went to his hat as often as that of the President of the Republic on his way to review at Longchamp. He was a man of substance and consideration, and he was just forty years of age. Amphilis adored him, and anticipated his commands. She returned with the letter. He glanced through it, reading portions aloud. "'I am sending you a young couple whom I have taken to my heart. They are not relations, they are not married, and they are not lovers.' They are Arcadians of the pavement, more innocent than doves, and of a ferocious English morality. She is a painter without patrons, he a professor without classes. They are also candidates for happiness performing their novitiate. Later they will take the vows. What does he mean? What vows? Perhaps they are pious people and are going to enter the convent, Phyllis suggested. "'I can see your father, anti-clerical that he is, "'interesting himself in little nuns and monks. "'Yet he and Monsieur le Curé are good friends. "'That is because Monsieur le Curé has much wisdom and no fear. "'He would have tried to convert Voltaire himself. "'Let us continue. "'As they are poor and doing this out of obedience—' a lot,' he laughed. "'They seem to have taken the three vows already.' "'He read on. "'They do not desire the royal suite in your Excelsior Palace.' Corinna Hastings has lived under the roofs in Paris, Martin Overshaw over a baker's shop in a vague quarter of London. All the luxury they ask is to be allowed to wash themselves all over in cold water once a day. "'I was sure you had not written to my father about the bathroom,' said Verdise. She was right, but the omission was odd, for Bigodard took inordinate pride in the newly installed bathroom, and all the touring clubs of Europe and editors of guide-books had heard of it, and he had offered it to the admiring inspection of half Brantome. Monsieur le maire himself had visited it, and if he had only arrived girt with the tricolore sash, Bigodin would have jumped in and demanded an inaugural ceremony. "'I must have forgotten,' said Bigodin. "'But no matter. They can have plenty of cold water. But if I am to feed them and lodge them and wash them for the derisory price your father stipulates, they must learn that six o'clock is the hour of double d'hôte of the Hôtel des Grottes.' It is only people in automobiles who can turn the place upside down, and then they have to pay four francs for their dinner. He rose mountainously, and, standing, displayed the figure of a vigorous, huge-proportioned, upright man. On his face, large and ruddy, a small black moustache struck a startling note. His eyes were brown and kindly, his mouth too small, and his chin had a deep cleft, which on a creature of lesser scale would have been a pleasing dimple. "'Allons, dîner,' said he. In the patriarchal fashion, now unfortunately becoming obsolete, Monsieur Bigodin dined with his guests. The salle à manger, off the loggia, was furnished with the long central table sacred to commercial travellers, and with a few side-tables for other visitors. At one of these, in the corner between the service-door and the dining-room door, sat Monsieur Bigodin and his niece. As they entered the room, five bagmen, with anticipatory napkins stuck cornerwise in their collars, half rose from their chairs and bowed. "'Bonsoir, monsieur,' said Bigodin, and he passed with Felice to his table. Euphémie, the cook, fat and damp, entered with a soup tureen, followed by a desperate-looking, crop-headed villain bearing plates. The latter, 
who viewed half a mile off through a telescope might have passed for an orthodox rater, appeared at close quarters to be raimented in grease and grime. He served the soup, first to the five commercial travellers, and then to Bigodin and Felice. On Felice's plate he left a great thumb-mark. She looked at it with an expression of disgust. Regard, mon oncle! Bigodin, alluding to him as a sacred animal, asked what she could expect. He was from Baudet, a place of rocks some five miles distant, condemned by Brantome, chef-lieu du canton. He summoned him. Polidor! Oui, monsieur. You have made a mistake. You, you are no longer in the hands of the police. Uh, monsieur Verdier? I am not the commissaire who desires to photograph your fingerprints. Ah, pardon, said Polidor, and with a soiled napkin he erased the offending stain. Sacre animal, repeated Bigodin, attacking his soup. I wonder why I keep him. I too, said Felice. If his grandmother and my grandmother had not been foster-sisters, said Bigodin, waving an indignant spoon, you would have kept him just because he is ugly, smiled Felice. You would have found the reason. One of these days I'll throw him into the river, Bigodin declared. I am patient, I am slow to anger, but when I am roused I am like a lion. Bonidor, said he serenely, as the dilapidated menial removed the plates, if you can't keep your hands clean, I'll make you wear gloves. People would laugh at me, said Polidor. So much the better, said Bigodin. The meal was nearly over when the expected guests were announced. Uncle and niece slipped from the dining-room into the little vestibule to welcome them. An elderly man in a blouse, named Baptiste, was already busying himself with their luggage, the knapsacks fastened to the back of the bicycles. "'Mademoiselle, monsieur,' said Bigodin, "'it is a great pleasure to me to make friends of my excellent brother-in-law. "'Allow me to present Mademoiselle Felice Fortinbras. "'He gave the French pronunciation. "'My niece, as dinner is not yet over, and as you must be hungry, "'will you give yourselves the trouble to enter the salle à manger?' "'I should like to have a wash first, said Corinna. "'Bigodin glanced to Felice. They were beginning early.' "'There is a bathroom upstairs fitted with every modern luxury.' Corinna laughed. "'I only want to tidy up a bit.' "'I will show you to your room,' said Felice, and conducted her up the staircase beside the bureau. "'And monsieur?' Martin went over to the little lavabo against the wall beside which hung the usual damp towel. "'This will do quite well,' said he. Bigodin breathed again. The new arrivals were quite human, and they spoke French perfectly. The men conversed a while until the two girls descended. Bigodin led his guests into the salle à manger and installed them at a table by one of the windows looking on the loggia. "'Like this,' said he, "'you will be cool and also enjoy the view.' "'I think,' said Corinna, looking up at him, "'you have the most delicious little town I have seen in France.' Bigodin's eyes beamed with gratification. He bowed and went back to his unfinished meal. "'Behold over there,' said he for Valise, "'a young girl of extraordinary good sense. "'She is also extremely pretty, "'a combination which is rare in women.' "'Yes, uncle,' said Valise demurely. The five commercial travellers rose, and, bowing as they passed their host, went out in search, after the manner of their kind, of coffee and backgammon at the Café de l'Univers in the Rue de Perigeux. 
It is only foreigners who linger over coffee, liqueurs and tobacco in the little inns of France. Presently, Felice went off to the bureau to make up the day's accounts, and Bigourdin, having smoked a thoughtful cigarette, crossed over to Martin and Corinna. After the good hotel-keeper's inquiry as to their gastronomic satisfaction, he swept his hand through his inch-high standing stubble of black hair, and addressed Martin. "'Monsieur Over... Over... Forgive me if I cannot pronounce your name.' "'Overshaw,' said Martin distinctly. "'Overshaw? Overshaw? No, c'est bigrement difficile. Then call me Monsieur Martin à la Française.' "'And me, Mademoiselle Corinne,' laughed Corinna. "'Voilà!' cried Bigaudin, delighted. "'Those are names familiar to every Frenchman.' Then his brow clouded. "'Well, Monsieur Martin, there is something I would say to you. What profession does my good brother-in-law exercise in Paris?' Martin and Corinna exchanged glances. "'I scarcely know,' said Corinna. "'Nor I,' said Martin. "'It is on account of my niece, his daughter, that I ask.' "'You permit me to sit down for a moment?' He drew a chair. "'You must understand at once,' said he, "'that I have nothing against Monsieur Fortinbras. "'I love him like myself. "'But on the other hand, I also love my little niece. "'She is very simple, very innocent, "'and does not appreciate the subtleties of the great world. "'She adores her father.' "'I can quite understand that,' said Martin, "'and I am sure that he adores her.' "'Precisely,' said Bigourdin. "'That is why I would like you to have no doubt as to the profession of my brother-in-law. "'You have never, by any chance, Mademoiselle Corinne, heard him call Le Marchand de Bonheur?' "'Never,' said Corinna, meeting his eyes. "'Never,' echoed Martin. "'Not even when he advised you to come here? "'It is for police that I ask.' "'No,' said Corinna. "'Certainly not,' said Martin. "'But you have heard that he is an avoué.' "'An English solicitor practising in Paris, of course,' said Martin. "'A very clever solicitor,' said Corinna. Bigaudin smote his chest with his great hand. "'I thank you with all my heart for your understanding. "'You are the first person she has met who know her father. "'It is somewhat embarrassing, what I say. "'And she, in her innocence, will ask you questions which he did not foresee.' "'There will be no difficulty in answering them,' replied Martin. "'Encore merci.' said Bigaudin. "'You must know that Felice came to us at five years old, when my poor wife was living. She died ten years ago. I am a widower. She is to me like my own daughter. Although,' he added with a smile and a touch of vanity, "'I am not quite so old as that. My sister, her mother, is older than I.' "'She is alive, then?' asked Corinna. "'Certainly,' replied Bigaudin. "'Did you not know that? But she has been an invalid for many years.' "'That is why Felice lives here instead of with her parents. "'I hope, mademoiselle, you and she will be good friends.' "'I am sure we shall,' replied Corinna. "'A little while later the two wanderers sat over their coffee "'by the balustrade of the covered loggia "'and looked out on the velvet night, filled with contentment. "'They had reached their goal. "'Here they were to stay until it pleased Fortinbras "'to come and direct them afresh.' Hitherto their resting-places, mere stages on their journey, had lacked the atmosphere of permanence. The still nights, when they talked together, as now, beneath the stars, had throbbed with a certain fever, the anticipation of the morrow's dawn, the morrow's adventures in strange lands. But now they had come to their destined haven. Here they would remain to-morrow, and the morrow after that, and for morrows indefinite. A phase of their life had ended, 
with curious suddenness. As the intensity of silence falls on ears accustomed to the whir of machinery, so did an intensity of peace encompass their souls, and the dim-lit valley itself brought solace. Not here stretched infinite horizons such as those of the plains of Laboas through which they had passed, horizons whence sprang a whole hemisphere of stars, horizons which embracing nothing sets the heart aching for infinite things beyond, horizons in the centre of which they stood specks of despair, overwhelmed by immensities. Here the comfortable land had taken them to its bosom. Near enough to be felt, the vague bluish mass of the Limousin Mountains, sweeping from north to east, assured them of the calm protection of eternal forces. Beyond them, who need look or grave to look? To the fevered spirit they brought in their mothering shelter all that was needed by man for his happiness. Fruitfulness of cornfields, mystery of beechwoods faintly revealed by the rays of a young moon, a quiet town for man's untroubled habitation, guarded by its encircling river, rather guessed than seen, and betrayed only here and there by a streak of quivering light. And as the distant glare of great cities, the lights of London reflected in the heavens, in the days of wandering youths seeking their fortunes, compelled them moth-like to the focus, so in its dreamy microcosm did the lights of the little town, a thousand flickering points from the outskirts, and a line of long illumination marking the main street athwart the dark mass of roofs, and dissipating itself hazily in mid-air, appeal to the imagination, set it wondering as to the myriad joyous affairs of men. In low voices they talked of Fortinbras. His spirit seemed to have emerged from the welter of Paris into this pool of the world's tranquillity. In spite of his magnetic force, his words had been but words. What they were to meet at Brantome they knew not. They scarce had thought. What to them had been the landlord of a tiny provincial inn, but a good-natured common fellow unworthy of speculation? And what the daughter of the seedy Paris bohemian, snapper-up of unconsidered trifles, but a serving-girl of no account, plain and redolent of the scullery? Bigodin's courteous bearing and delicacy of speech had come upon them as a surprise. So had the refinement of Felice. They had to readjust their conception of Fortinbras. They were amazed, simple souls, to find that he had ties in life so indubitably irrespectable. And he had a wife, too, a, a chronic invalid, with whom he lived in the jealous obscurity of Paris. It was pathetic. They had obeyed him, hardly knowing why. At the back of their minds he had been but a charlatan of peculiar originality. At the same time, a being almost mythical, so remote from them was his life. And now, he became startlingly real. They heard his voice, soft and persuasive, whispering by their side with a touch of gentle mockery. Then silence fell upon them, their minds drifted apart, and they lost themselves in their separate dreams. At last, Polydor, coming to remove the coffee tray and to inquire as to their further wants, broke the spell. When he had gone, Corinna leaned her elbow on the little arm table and asked, in her direct fashion, "'What have you been thinking of, Martin?' He drew his hand across his eyes, and it was a moment or two before he answered. "'When I was in London,' said he, "'I seemed to have lived in a tiny provincial town. Now that I come to a tiny provincial town, I have an odd feeling 
that the deep life of a great city is before me. That's the best I can do by way of explanation. Thoughts like that are a bit formless and elusive, you know. What do you think you're going to find here? I don't know. Why not happiness in some form or other? You expect a lot for five francs, she laughed. And you? I? Yes, what have you been thinking of? She pointed, and in the gloom he followed the direction of white-bloused arm and white hand. Do you see that little house on the quay, the one with the lights and the lodger? You can just get a glimpse of the interior. See? There's a picture, and below a woman sitting at a piano. If you listen, you can catch the sound. It's Schubert's moment musical. Well, I've been wishing I were that woman with her life full of her home and husband and children. Sheltered, protected, love all around her. Nothing more to ask of God. It was a beautiful dream. You too, said Martin, feel about this place somewhat as I do. I suppose it's the night. It turns one into a sentimental lunatic. Fancy living here for the rest of one's days and concentrating one's soul on human stomachs. What do you mean, Corinna? Isn't that what women's domestic life comes to? She must fill her husband's stomach properly, or he'll beat her or run off with somebody else. And she must fill her baby's stomachs properly, or they'll get cramps and convulsions and bilious attacks and die. It was a beautiful dream, but the reality would drive me stick stark staring mad. "'My ideas of married life,' said Martin sagely, "'are quite different.' "'Of course,' she cried, "'you're one of the creatures with the stomach.' "'I've never been aware of it,' said Martin. "'It strikes me you're too good for this world,' said Corinna. Martin rolled a cigarette from a brown packet of Maryland tobacco. His supply of English woodbines had long since given out. "'I have my ideals as to love and so forth,' said he. "'And so have I. "'All for love and the world well lost. "'That's the title of an old play, isn't it? "'I can understand it. "'I would give my soul for it. "'But it happens once in a blue moon. "'Meanwhile one has to live. "'And connubiality and maternity "'and a little lost hole in nowhere like this "'aren't life.' "'What the Dickens is life?' asked Martin. "'But her definition he did not hear.' for the vast figure of Bigodin loomed in the doorway of the salle à manger. "'I wish you good-night,' said he. Martin rose and looked at his watch. "'I think it's time to go to bed.' "'So do I,' yawned Corinna. End of chapter 4